This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. Thanks for joining us. And now here's the podcast. Welcome back to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by Bridge Bio. I'm Mandy Rorick, and I'm joined by my colleague, David Rintel. Thank you all for joining us for part two, the conclusion of our conversation with Anne and Mike about their journey living with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, or ADPKD. In part one, we left off with Anne telling us what happened after her successful kidney transplant. So Anne, you had been your kidney received from your friend, and old bean, which was your original kidney, uh, did they remove both of your polycystic kidneys during the surgery? So they actually didn't remove either of my old kidneys. They left them both in. Uh We talked about removing them. I wanted Mm -hmm. them removed, but in the end, they decided there was too much risk for an infection of the new kidney, and they didn't want to risk that. Mm -hmm. You know, the surgeons, they just said, no, they're not taking out the old kidneys during the surgery. I didn't have too much say in that. It was it was a conservative approach that they mm-hmm. that they do there at Mass General. I think they're just more conservative. I don't know if that's a blanket statement, but it seems from my experience. Yeah. And what are the risks of leaving them? Well, there was quite a few actually because I had I had a lot of issues with the native kidneys that were left in. The first the first several years things were very good with the transplanted kidney and I didn't have Mm -hmm. um, many issues at all. But then I started having a lot of pain, especially on my right side. And it was pretty debilitating. You end up at the ER, not sure what it is. Um, They thought maybe there was a ruptured cyst Mm -hmm. from the old kidneys. Um, It would be like a three to four day event. And she'd end up getting admitted Mm -hmm. and then they treat it. Basically, you just have to get through that pain. And then the body resolves it. Oh, gosh. Um, Sometimes, you know, I'd have to go on antibiotic to make sure I didn't get an infection. But that started happening very regularly. Um, It Mm. it maybe was once a year, then it was twice a year. Then it started happening three to four times a year. And we made the decision in 2018 to remove the right native kidney um, because that was always the pain was always on the right side. So they determined it was the native kidney that was causing all the issues. I had that removed. I had a surgery where they removed the right kidney. And also I have polycystic liver disease. Mm -hmm. So there was also cysts on my liver, quite a few. And they weren't sure a hundred percent if the cysts rupturing were from the liver or the kidney. It's really hard to know when there's multiple cysts because Uh, it's, I guess if you have really large cysts and then one disappears, you might notice it's gone. But if you have multiple similar size cysts, you wouldn't you wouldn't know. Yes. They also did what's called cyst fenestration of my liver, where they went in and they took out, de-roofed, it's called, or fenestration. They go in and they take out some of the cysts off your liver. So they did at the same time they took the right native kidney. It was a really difficult surgery and it was a really difficult recovery. I didn't uh, do too well with the recovery on that surgery. <laughs> We're like, we are not having this on one take. Yeah. <laughs> they should have done it at the time of transplant because you're recovering anyway. Right. Yeah. 
I know. I was at Mass General too, but they did not want to do it. The nephrologist that was following me came from San Francisco and they do like 300 and something transplants a year, a lot of polycystic. And they always take out the kidneys at the time of transplant for the polycystic patients. And I was just sitting there going, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 do it, do it. It was a tough surgery and it was like 10 hours for him, but it was worth yeah. it. Yeah. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Me too. So, and the cysts on your liver, were they there because of ADPKD? Yes. So the, I don't know what the percentage is, but a certain percentage of patients that have polycystic kidney develop polycystic liver disease. And unfortunately, I'm one of them. And so all throughout the kidney transplant and all those years that I was on immunosuppressants, my liver started getting bigger and bigger and getting more cysts on it. And every time I had a checkup or, or a ruptured cyst or an ER visit, which was pretty frequently, they would check the liver at the same time and it was getting larger. And around 2018, when I had the liver cyst fenestration is when they started telling me that I might need a liver transplant someday. I was floored. I was so shocked. I just couldn't believe it. I never thought that I would even have to be dealing with the liver. I don't know. I guess I thought that I was, uh, I had enough on my plate with the kidney. I just couldn't believe they were saying this. Yes. Yeah. So you went back for additional surgery to remove one of your native kidneys and they did the liver fenestration, which is the removal of cysts. And you had a very difficult recovery after that surgery. How did you do after that? Then after that, I, I had about two good years of no, no ruptured cysts, no hospital, no ER visits, yeah. no pain. So it, it, it appeared to have worked. And I guess the left native kidney had started to shrink a little, which, which they say could happen. So it seemed like I had a couple of really good years with no issues. And then, and then the liver. Then the liver decided to, you know, rear its ugly head uh-huh. and get bigger on me. It started causing all the problems and I started oh. back in the ER with ruptured cysts again. It started getting bigger to the point where I was starting to get a belly, a belly that looked like I was pregnant. It took about two to three years, but I developed a pretty large pregnant looking belly. People often asked me when I was expecting and when I was due, it was, it was, uh, <laughs> It was pretty maddening. And I mean, I I started wearing like loose shirts and things because it it didn't matter how much I went to the gym and how, what I weighed. I, it it just, it was all the liver. So the liver developed more cysts after the surgery to remove cysts. I I don't know how big the liver was. They could never really, they, they took measurements when they would do an ultrasound and whatnot. They would measure the cysts on the liver. Because it, it pushes back into the abdomen too, and so even though the CAT scans didn't really fully show, um, mm-hmm. you know, the true size of it, but I think what did they say? It was four to five times. Yeah. Um, now having had it removed, yeah. it was much bigger yeah. than that. <laughs> um, and during this time when the liver was getting bigger and bigger with cysts, Mike, what were you thinking and feeling? And I know that you're very protective of Anne and very involved. So what was that like? Yeah. And, and, you know, we live our lives as an open book so that, you know, anybody that would listen to me, I would talk to them about kidney disease and liver disease. And, you know, we started learning a lot about, all right, what's, what's entailed with a living liver donor. And, you know, they can take a lobe 
you know, in that which regenerates in the in the donor's body and transplant it in and get a new one. So that was like our mindset, like, oh, maybe we're going to have to gear this up and I got to start another social media campaign, take lessons learned from the first one. I mean, I created a, a, a Facebook page that said, have you, do you have the right lobe? Because they take the right lobe from a donor for ant. And then, you know, I had it, it was ready to go and, you know, starting yeah. to get some resources yeah. together so that, you know, you put the information out there and let people come to back to you with, you know, questions or, you know, where to go to, to learn more. And then we had learned that the, the transplant clinic had said, no, we're, you're going to have to have a deceased donor because we need the extra length on the, the portal vein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The portal vein. So the, the issue that she ended up having when the liver got too big yeah. was it caused portal hypertension and, and the portal yeah. vein is a return valve to the liver from like your intestines, your stomach it takes all the nutrients and then it categorizes them and sets them up for a later date to be distributed. Well, this portal hypertension, when it, it, it was causing the pressure on the portal vein, not allowing all that fluid to go back to the liver. So then what ends up happening is it leaks into the belly mm-hmm. and now you have what they call ascites or basically fluid in your stomach which causes the further distension and um, discomfort. Yeah. So you heard that you needed to have a liver from someone who is deceased. And I'm just going to ask, thinking about a, an organ from a living donor and from a deceased well, donor, it's, it's something you have no control over. So it was really hard because I guess with the kidney, you know, even though we had the kidney campaign and we didn't know when we'd have a live donor, we were always working on that. We were always doing something. He was always posting something or spreading the word or, you know, working towards that goal. But with a deceased donor, you, your goal is to get on the list, the waiting list, and you have to have an evaluation and you have to be approved and... And so we went through that process and that's when we just, you know, learned that we had to wait for a deceased donor and, you know, you don't know when that's going to happen. You, you just have to wait and pray. And it's a funny thing, you know, you're praying for a recovery, you're praying for healing, but it's because someone else loses their life for you to your Mm -hmm. back. So it means that there's really not much you can do except for pray. And I guess praying for your own health and whatever we pray about people who lose their lives. So that is a very tragic, but also yeah, hopeful. Yeah. It's gratitude on at the like same different time. levels. So the gratitude towards a living donor is, you know, you, you have that ability to be, Oh, thank you so much. You, they can watch your improvement in life. Um, and then with a deceased donor yeah. is you want to express that gratitude to the deceased donor's family to say thank you for making that decision. Oh, yes, yes, really. Formed that a liver became available? Luckily, my my doctors advocated to UNOS to get me some exception points for my, for my condition. The fact that I needed a liver, the fact that they determined that I needed a new kidney as well because the kidney started to... Um, kidney function. My kidney oh. function started to go, started to go down based on the condition I was in physically, I became malnourished suddenly. Uh-huh. It just happened rather quickly, but between the portal hypertension and uh-huh. the ascites, That's I wasn't gosh. able to eat because of the pressure and the pain in my belly and quickly became malnourished. Even though I looked pregnant, I was losing muscle and I was all like 
Uh, you know, yeah. I lost, I was losing all the muscle. I was just skin yeah. and bones. And it was a, a really long few months of, mm-hmm. of not feeling well, yeah. you know, just going to bed every night, thinking about it, praying about it. She had also had to have the fluid um, removed too, like two to three times a week. So having that fluid removed, you're also removing all the nutrients that should be going to the liver to be sent back out to the body. So it was like this double-edged sword that oh you know, we were in. Yeah. And just again, so we don't miss something, you referred to um, points and unos. Oh, exception points from UNOS, in order to get on the liver transplant list. When you need a liver, you get what's called a MELD score. Um, Median end liver disease, I think, is MELD. And my score was only a 14, which is very low compared to a a range of zero to 40. My liver function, my labs, they looked normal. Even though my liver was not normal, even though it was covered with cysts, even though I had portal hypertension, my labs were showing that my liver function was normal. So I had a 14 for a MELD score. And in order to get a transplant, the average score is is a 30 to get, you know, ready for transplantation. So the doctors advocated to United Network Organ Sharing, UNOS, to get me exception points for the other mm-hmm. conditions and the other deficiencies I had, which were mm-hmm. the fact that my kidney function was low and that my GFR was low right. and that I was malnourished. I was able to get exception points and I was able to get a 30, mm-hmm. which put me right at transplant. Mm-hmm. And the doctors knew that it would be happening within weeks to months that I would get the call. And UNOS, what does it stand for again? United Network of Organ Organ Sharing. Thank you for explaining that. So you were led to understand that it would be weeks or months until a liver would be identified and also you needed a new kidney. Yeah, I was uh, surprised. I thought that I, you know, I just needed a liver. So that was more news when they told me I also needed a kidney. My kidney had been, you know, Bean. Bean had been a rock star for the last 11 years, but it started to take a little bit of a hit when I started having these issues with the liver. And, you know, you go through what's called a a slight rejection episode or like an acute kidney failure, they call it all of a sudden when you end up in the ER and you have an infection or you have something happen. And that's exactly what happened. I ended up in the hospital for about three weeks with a pretty bad infection in, in my abdomen, you know, from the liver and from the portal hypertension. And so the kidney function dropped and they determined that while they were in there replacing my liver, that it was the best thing Uh, to do would be to also give me a new kidney at the same time. So I wouldn't have to have a separate surgery a few years later because it's possible the kidney could recover, but they weren't, you know, sure. So we determined it was best to do them both at the same time. So I had the double transplant. When was that? This past March. 2023. Um, three months. It'll be 11 weeks this week. Tell us about it, if you would, both of you. I was in the hospital for only six days. I was so thrilled to get home because it's so hard to sleep in the hospital, but I'm on quite a few more yeah. immunosuppressant medications, quite a few. The ones that you take for kidney transplant, you yeah. know, every day you take these for the rest of your life. So it's a process and you get into the routine, but now my medications, I think, are about four times as much as I was on before. So, you you know, you go home and you you take your pills and you, you rest as much as you can. I needed naps just about every single day for the first, I'd say, four weeks. And then, you know, each week you start to feel a little bit more like yourself. You have a little bit more energy. 
right about the six week mark, the surgery mm-hmm. area itself mm-hmm. was pretty yeah. healed up. You know, start not to feel that pain anymore because it takes a while to get through the, the abdomen pain, you know, the belly pain just from them cutting through all the muscles and everything. And now uh, when I hit week eight, I really turned the corner and started to get my energy. I didn't need naps yeah. anymore. And yeah. I've been trying to go for, you know, go for a walk and work out in the yard. And so I'm just continuing to to do that type of work right now. I'm, I'm back to work also. I'm kind of pacing myself. I work a lot from home and Mike does more of the running around stuff for me. And we're lucky that we're self-employed, that we're able to to control the way those things work for us. So Mike, Anne has been through the ringer, but you've certainly been through the ringer as well. You know, when she got sick and we own our own real estate company, so Anne usually handles all the listings. I usually handle like all the buyer clients. And then I, you know, obviously help her in any way, shape or form. But then when she got sick, I was thrust into that role of, okay, I'm going to do the open house, no big deal. And then all of a sudden now I've got a, a listing appointment. And I'm not used to doing those. So she's on a hospital bed, like coaching me, like, you got to do this and you got to do this. And, you know, while she's been in the business uh, for 20 some odd years, you know, I was a fireman for 20 something years. And then, so, you know, I get into real estate and I don't have a clue, like it's, it's day and night. And I, it, what it, I really understood was how much I didn't know. So I, re, I rely upon her to, to give me advice and thing, even though I've been doing this now for like eight, nine years. Yeah. Um, but so the when she became sick and incapacitated, it was I, I was doing everything, which I didn't mind, and it was manageable. Um, but it was very hard to be a caregiver, full time worker, and have that stress of my spouse is down for the count. So in December, I remember us having a conversation, and we're like, you know, some of our friends were taking yeah. their kids out of college or high school, and they're going away on on trips, and we're here we are sitting here in the recliner in front of the TV yeah. going wow, like this is, you know, we had a great year, we made a bunch of money, but we, we can't even spend it because yeah. you're incapacitated. The, it, it continued to get better. She got listed and it was the day of that we got the call. I had my whole schedule was booked yeah. solid and, and I was parlaying it all into picking up our youngest down in, in Rhode Island to bring him home for the oh, spring break. Spring break, yeah. And we get this call at six, six o'clock in the morning. And it's like, I didn't know which way to turn. <laughs> I was like this expected father. Like, like I just panicked and like I, for about five minutes, I didn't get anything accomplished except <laughs> for like, just going, Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And, uh, finally I, I cleared the calendar. We, and we got to the house and of course you get in the car by the time we got in the, we hit the worst traffic on the way in, you know, a 30 minute mm-hmm. normal 30 minute ride took us an hour and some change. And she's still in pain and discomfort. So, you know, and then we get there and then it's the waiting game. And you do, you have to wait because the team had already, Mass General team had already taken off. And we don't know exactly where the donor was from, but it was it was out of our local area. So they flew. So we knew that much. Um, and then they have to go and when they're doing the recovery of the organs, um, there's a whole lot of variables. So, and I, I know mm-hmm. that, the, you know, this is, there's a lot of like, what ifs could go wrong. So it was like patiently optimistic or cautiously optimistic was probably the best. Cautiously optimistic yeah. was probably the best word. So the, the team from Mass General needed to go where the donors 
yeah, wherever the donor is, they go there, they, they do the recovery there. And this was a DCD donor, which is direct cardiac death. They, they extubate them and then his, their heart has to stop within an X amount of time frame. And if it doesn't, they can't recover those organs because they're not being properly perfused. So it's amazing what you learn when you're in the midst of all of this uh, uh, stuff. So, yeah. so I was like uh, an expecting father, yeah. nervous, yeah. kind of freaking out a little bit, yeah. but once I knew they got to the point where they wheeled her down to um, yeah. surgery, they said, you can hang yeah. around for about an hour. And I just went home. Yeah. And then they called me. Uh, the surgery started at like nine. Nine o'clock at night. Nine o'clock at yeah. night. Called me a half an hour, 45 minutes into it, just to say we've made incision. Everything's looking good. The uh, donor's organs are here. Everything is, we're a go, go, go. Mm, wow. And they said, you're not going to get another call until the surgery's over. And that happened six o'clock the next morning. And do you know anything about the donor? We know that he's a male. We know he was younger than Anne. And, and we think that he was from somewhere in New York. Mm-hmm. Anne wrote a letter to yeah. his family, which you channel it through the yeah. New England, New England donor, donor Services. services. Yeah. And then they reach out to the local organ bank in their area. Uh-huh. And then they, they, they tell the donor, yeah. we have yeah. received correspondence from your recipient. Would you like to yeah. have it? Now they could choose. Yeah. We don't want to hear anything. We don't want to know anything about it. Um, but we are very much open uh-huh. to uh, open establishing yeah. communication with them. I mean, I don't care where they are. We'll, we'll, we'll drive out there. I mean, yeah. just to say thank you for making that decision in like the most difficult time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's what really hit home was as happy as oh, we yeah. were and we were ecstatic yeah. and we're like, oh, she's got a transplant. Everything went fine. And then you stop and think about it and you go, but there's other people on the other end of the spectrum who are dealing with the worst day of their life and they just lost a loved one, but they made this amazing decision to, um, to donate their life. And for us to be able to share with them, like how much that has improved our lives. Because honestly, without Anne, I'm like a train wreck. You know, I need to be supervised constantly. <laughs> I can't be trusted with the bank accounts or anything like that. I need her here. <laughs> That's a true story. Yeah. <laughs> like a gremlin, you know, you don't let me eat after midnight. No water, though. No water after midnight. All right. I only have two more questions. And thank you so much for your time. The first one is about family members. Uh, you have an autosomal dominant genetic condition, which means that in addition to your dad, there were other family members affected in your dad's generation. And then, of course, you have four children. Can you just talk about how ADPKD has impacted your family, both past, present, and potentially future? Yes. So starting with the loss of my father um, at a young age, my two brothers and myself having been passed on the the disease out of my four children, out of my three children, not including my stepson, two of my children have ADPKD. And one of my brothers has two sons who luckily do not have it. And my oldest brother has three sons and they have not been tested yet. Not sure why they're waiting. I have any. I have no influence on that. It's 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 been talked about. How old are those kids? The ones who have not been tested. Well, the ones that have not been tested are thirties and forties. Thirties and forties. And scratch my theory. I haven't had my. I had one daughter tested, but not the other because they said wait as long as possible because of life insurance and other insurance. Life insurance, a pre-existing condition. 
Yeah, it's, that's true. So yeah. our, our youngest daughter, we actually had tested at one years old. I had, we had to know, mm -hmm. like, so that we could start preparing it. So the first screening that they, they did an ultrasound and they detected like three or four cysts on her kidneys. She went in year two, the kidney had grown, but the cysts had not. Really? And so she's been followed since, and she's been screened, I don't know, maybe three or four times since then, just with ultrasounds to see the, you know, the cyst progression. She's a college athlete. She plays basketball, but you know she's very much aware. We we've talked about it. We want her to you know have ownership in it and to take care of herself too. That's probably one of the most mm -hmm. important things. Yeah, and and your siblings. My oldest brother had his kidney transplant um, in 2010, the year before me. He got the kidney mm -hmm. from his wife, and he's doing great. He gets his mm -hmm. regular checkups. He's yeah, he's a, he's mm -hmm. on a Mediterranean cruise right now, so he's. He's doing wonderful. Unfortunately, my my other older brother um, passed away uh -huh. in 2021 from kidney failure and COVID. He he was on dialysis, waiting for a transplant. He'd been on the transplant list about three years, and yeah. he uh, got COVID, and it just did a number on his body. His body was compromised. His yeah. immune system was compromised, and he. He just couldn't fight it. Uh, so sadly, we lost we lost him. It just seems clear hearing your story and then also thinking about family members that you could say, okay, ADPKD, I think kind of the way that Mike first thought about it, no big deal, get it, find another kidney, we're all set. But clearly it's not that simple. Sometimes it works out. I think your older brother who's on a cruise has done well, but... You've had so many surgeries and so many complications, and you're still recovering from your last one. Of course, your other brother passed away because of the vulnerability of having kidneys that don't function correctly. Right. So it's a serious matter. Yeah, it's pretty devastating. It's yeah. Devastating on, on a family. Yeah. Devastating because it yeah. affects so many people in the family, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm still fighting it. So where do we go from here? What do you see? What do you see happening in the future? And yeah, I, I mean, I, it's apparent to me now. It, it really is a lifelong, it is a lifelong fight. You know, I hope that with now having this new liver and this new kidney, that I, I mean, I can only hope that I never have to have another transplant. That these, that these are going to last me a lifetime. I've heard positive medical information about the liver. Like I, I should never need another liver. I don't know how long I'll have the kidney because having what happened to the first one, I guess a little skeptical about it, but I, I take all my meds. I follow all of the protocol I'm supposed to follow. I exercise regularly and try to, you know, keep, keep my body healthy, keep my, my spirit healthy, keep my mind sharp and, and hope that I just am around for a long time, that these organs are going to last me the rest of my life. Yes. That's my hope. We hope so too. And we're, rooting for you. Thank you. First of all, we're so grateful and and Mike for taking the time to share your story and it's a as you say, what a challenge to live with. And the more people can understand about this condition and about transplants, I think the better. Yeah. That's my hope. And I just want to say some words of gratitude to your friend. Thank you. For her generosity, for taking a big risk to help by donating a 
one of our kidneys. And to the family of your liver and kidney donor, you put it so well at a terrible time in the lives of those family members that they made a decision to give life to someone else. Yeah, thank you. Not just people living with ADPKD, but you know, the importance of transplantation is something that all of us need to know more about. Once again, thank you. This has really been remarkable. Thanks for having us. And thanks for letting us share the story and we hope it helps others. Mike and Anne have an incredible story. And Amy, I want to turn to you first because you also have ADPKD. And I'm curious how hearing their experience affected you and perhaps compares to your own experience. Thanks, Mandy. You know what? There were so many parts that I um, related to exactly. But um, there was some stuff I I wasn't aware of. I I didn't even know there was a point system or a, a scoring for transplant for the recipient. I didn't know that. So, Amy, you've had a kidney transplant. Um, yeah, I did. I had a transplant seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I was diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease when I was 16. Then they did project yeah. when I was going to need a transplant because my kidneys would fail. I was lucky enough to have had a living donor. Yeah. Incredible story. A, a friend of mine donated, and she was tested and was a near-perfect match. And as of now, I am not in need of a liver transplant, although my liver is affected also with cysts, you know, after seven years now that I've had my transplant that probably I'm going to need another one too. And it, you know, when you're living with it every day, you're thinking, oh, I'm doing good. I feel great. You're not thinking forward to 10 years or however long, but you know, these transplantations, they, um, they have a shelf life. It's scary. Amy, I, I have to say, I feel like I was so naive about transplantation before talking to Anne and Mike and to you. It's easy for those of us who are not affected to think, okay, well, you have ADPKD, you just have a kidney transplant. But first of all, it's major surgery. And second of all, it can be very difficult to find a donor that is a good match. And Anne's story really tells you that you don't know how long a kidney transplant is going to last and to function well. And the entire process has got to be really, really difficult. I am so impressed that someone that Anne knew, probably not her closest friend, but someone had the generosity to offer her a kidney. And a friend of yours had the incredible generosity to offer you a kidney. And it makes me wonder how many of us would do that. And makes me wonder about myself doing it, honestly. We have within us the capacity to donate an organ and save someone's life. And many people are awaiting transplants, and we should all be thinking about if this is something that we can do and look into it. I think while transplantation has come a long ways and we're very much improved in that arena, I don't think this can't be the only treatment option for this community. And it just illustrates that that more needs to be done. Mandy, I could not agree more. Uh, transplantation and dialysis are very helpful for people living with ADPKD, but this must not be the only option for people living with ADPKD. Thank you, David, 
Thank you so much, Ann and Mike, for sharing your story. If you want to watch their documentary, you can find a link to it in our podcast description. Thank you, Dr. Rachel Groth, for helping us to better understand the science of ADPKD. Thank you, Amy, for giving us your unique perspective. To learn more about PKD, visit pkd.org, or to learn about becoming an organ donor, visit donatelife.net. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Thank you for being with us today. Join us for our next conversation on RARE.